It ain't to me, it's the motion. Makes your daddy wanna rock. It ain't to me, it's the motion. Welcome to the Hot Stove Society show on Cairo Radio. We're happy that you're here. Thank you for joining us. Between our guests and our audience members, uh, we have a full house here today. Chef Annie is busy making breakfast in the back. I'm Tom Douglas. Chef Terry is visiting his mother in Nantes, France, which is like this, the western edge of France. We've been there together. We went to the town of Nantes, you and I, and had a cheese shop experience of our lifetime. Called I'll never the, forget it. Called Gem, I think it was called, and their cheeses were lined up in little cases like they were diamond bracelets and... It was just a spectacular day. Yeah, we've always thought about that place. I still have the business card from that place. Let's return. So we have a show without Terry, so it's going to go quick today. <laughs> <laughs> he's, a, he's a storyteller, that one. Yeah, mine are shorter. Yeah, exactly. So uh, thank you for joining us. And Pam is stepping up to the mic, our producer. Exactly. You know, Pleasure to be I with hear you. such good things from people when they love hearing your voice on the radio. You are, you're a steady influence on our show. Oh, my well, no, because you're jovial, and everyone loves to hear your, your passion here. I like learning more from you. I wasn't paying attention the first 40 years. <laughs> now <laughs> oh now I'm getting some cooking tips. There you go. Uh, we have a large show, two hours. We hope that you're listening in your garden or in your car or in your kitchen or, or uh, live on Cairo. We're coming to you from the Hotel Andra here in downtown Seattle. It's a beautiful spot to stay if you ever want to come and do the show and do a weekend in downtown Seattle. This is a great place to hole up. Uh, we're going to do uh, National Seafood Month again this week for the whole month of October. We're going to learn today about wild Alaskan pollock. Uh, I've got some here ready to go in the pan when our guests uh, come up to the stage here. So uh, I'm looking forward to cooking that because I don't cook pollock very much. Terry cooks it more than I do. I want to learn about its availability more today because yeah. my, I, I want to pressure my fish market. The other always thing you, have it. The other thing you keep hearing about pollock is that it's a very sustainable fish. It's good for the earth uh, to be eating pollock um, compared to many other creatures. Uh, Megan Vaughn of Bourbon Steak is going to visit us. Uh, you know, I haven't been there since they changed it over Either, not yet. For, from uh, uh, what it was before down there at 4th and uh, Union, I think, or Pike or something like that. Our studio audience has uh, submitted a few questions, which you and I will address. I'm looking forward to that. And Chris Knight's call for fall polenta. And we have some ideas on making it scrumptious. Uh, I have a surprise for you about that. I bet you don't remember that my opening menu at the Dahlia 34 years ago had an option of this on the menu. So I'm no, no, I don't remember you making polenta. Thanks there. for your support. That was awesome. <laughs> Uh, today, Rub With Love is not sponsoring the Tasty Trivia, so don't, don't hang up yet. Don't turn off the dial. Uh, we're going to have a segment based on famous food quotes. And I think it's you and me against each other, right? Well, I, I might drag some of the audience in. All right, because we I was just getting ready to trash talk you there, but <laughs> if it's the audience, I love you all. <laughs> uh, first, let's get to our taste of the week. Pam, you started with uh, something that's very interesting to me. Uh, a little off-season, I will say, but interesting. So tell me what you got. This was a presentation of artichoke that I had never seen before. It is just the charred, grilled, oiled, tasty bottoms. So they w must have steamed them first. I didn't ask my waiter mm -hmm. uh, to get them soft on the inside. And then they went on the grill with chili flake, flake salt, a lot of olive oil, and they had... Heat, crispiness, 
and a soft center that just blew my mind. How big were they? Uh, three the, the rounds were three inches? Yeah. And how many were there on a plate? Too many. We could not eat them. There were probably 11. And that was a serving size, an appetizer serving size at a Milanese cafe. Where? In New <laughs> in York? West, in the West Village, yeah. Because <laughs> that's what I find amazing about artichoke bottoms. Like, they're called artichoke bottoms. Artichoke, they're not really the heart. They're the bottom, the bottom. of the heart. But if they're fresh, that means they had to peel. I asked, and they do. And they use the leaves, and uh, um, I think she said it was for a soup, the other pieces of the huh. artichoke. She said they butcher their vegetables right there. The idea, the idea of butchering <laughs> seven artichokes, eight artichokes, so that you could have just the bottoms I know, is mind-boggling to me in today's world. An artichoke, if you go to the grocery store, can be 4 or $5 exactly. each. Now, they're probably not those that big, but still. It was mind How much blowing. was your appetizer? $13. Oh, my God. I know. They were losing money. It was ridiculous. How is this possible? I don't get it. And I asked how uh, big their compost bin was because <laughs> it had all that waste yeah. coming off all those artichokes. Yeah. But it was delicious. I am going to make it for you. Well, I can't wait because what a pain in the butt of this to prepare that many artichokes <laughs> uh, to get to those perfect little bottoms. Uh, any other highlights in uh, food highlights in New York when you well, were there? You, you were there were. all last week, right? Yep. Because you ditched our show last Friday. Yes. Um, we had uh, back to cheese. We had a perfect cheese plate at Bouvette. Uh-huh. Uh It is when the restaurant takes the care to temper every cheese and build the balance between the blues and the creamy. Different and animals. The age. Sheep, yep, different goat, animals. Cow. And it had um, wonderful pickled fruit accompaniments and. Then um, I was channeling you. Uh, we had a beautiful Pinot Noir one night with a duck confit. Mm, lovely. That was spectacular. And thank you for turning me on to Maria because we went back. That's lunch. a splurge, isn't it? That's a splurge, but it's so worth it. It's Well, the location is awesome, right on Central awesome. Park there at Columbus. And, I mean, it's $30 for an appetizer, yeah. $35, $40 for an appetizer and. 75 for an entree you really have to go in wanting to uh have a special night yeah, yeah. but you uh but you feel I love a new sit- york experience you do it's very new york and i love sitting at the bar there that's what we did and last time i was there i uh, bruce springsteen came and sat down next to us yeah. and yeah it was it was uh, it's quite the new york experience yeah yeah i agree and if you're going to save your night for a splurge that's the kind of place i used to go to elaine's on the upper east side oh, for I the new york experience there. Because all the celebs ate at yeah. Elaine's. And it was just a trashy Italian restaurant. And not trashy is the wrong word, but it was, it was classic Italian uh, restaurant. It wasn't anything fancy. Uh, my taste of the week, you know, we continue to taste and work on the menu down at our new barbecue joint called Etta's Big Mountain Barbecue. And it's going to be opening right around that first week of November. But we continue to taste through the menu. And yesterday I, we did a classic, uh, like a French dip, but with a smoky brisket uh, caramelized onions, some Beecher's uh, Jack, and made uh, with our Kansas City barbecue sauce that we, we already make. Um, mm. I haven't what had a dip. What about the onions? I had a dip. Caramelized onions and caramelized. butter. Oh. Butter caramelized onions. Oh. I haven't had like a French dip in a long time. The problem with this, the broth that you heat the beef in, you know, when you, you reheat the beef in a little bit of broth, it gets too smoky. So we had, uh, I didn't like the smoky broth, so I just did it with some barbecue sauce. So we'll see where that ends up. But that's part of the fun part of opening a restaurant, right, is to uh, try all these new things and new techniques and 
We're getting close. My onion, my Walla Walla sweet onion stack. You know, you know your way around an onion. <laughs> Super fun. Coming up, Pollock is on the menu, but it's not really Pollock, is it, Pam? We've learned this already today. It's Alaskan wild Pollock. We're going to talk about uh, wild Alaskan Pollock for National Seafood Month, which we're doing all of October here on the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Fish on. Fish on. Fish on. And we're back. It's the Hot Stove Society Kitchen at the Hotel Andra in downtown Seattle. If you ever want to join us, just go to hotstovesociety.com and buy some tickets. Uh, you get breakfast and hot coffee. Chef Annie is dedicated to a delicious breakfast every week. Uh, we are um, right above Lolov. Sometimes people get, they can't see the hot stove, so they get lost looking for it. But right in the hotel upstairs of Lola is where we are, especially right now today. Uh, we're continuing our efforts with uh, National Seafood Month. Uh, Ken has brought in a couple of new faces for us today. Craig Morris, the Chief Executive Officer of the Association of Genuine Alaska Pollock Producers, and Bob Desatel. Uh, president, CEO of Global Seas and Chairman of GAP, which is the the Genuine Alaskan Pollock Producers acronym. So, see, I did use it after all. And you can't buy a T-shirt there, <laughs> or maybe you can. Oh yeah, we've oh, got, maybe we've got you a can. lot of swag. I bet there's we got swag. sweatshirts. We got. I bet there's swag. <laughs> Let's start right there because you corrected us right away this morning. We called it Pollock, which is incorrect because Pollock can come from anywhere, especially Russia, right? So, uh, you are. Wild Alaskan pollock. That's correct. The fish, uh, it's a wild capture fish. It swims the entire Bering Sea. Uh, however, only uh, uh, Alaska pollock that's caught in off the coast of the state of Alaska in U.S. waters can be called Alaska pollock. Mm-hmm. And so we work hard to build awareness and demand for wild Alaska pollock because it supports uh, U.S. fishermen. And all of that product, obviously, is coming hey, down from the great state of Alaska. Craig, something else i got to mention is while Alaska Pollock can only be caught in, in Alaska, and also it can only be sold in America as wild Alaska Pollock. When you do see other Pollock on at the stores, that could be from Russia. I see. There you go. I see. So, and isn't it all very important. shipped from very Alaska important. to Asia to be processed and then back to America? Absolutely not. Absolutely uh, not. Yeah, so these, this product That's a we've got here today is actually processed at sea, uh, is frozen at sea, and it is shipped down here uh, for us to enjoy today. Nice. So in front of us, I have some frozen wild Alaska Pollock fillets, and then you brought another product here. That's um, what? What did you call this? These are amazing. This is from one of our member companies called American Seafoods. Uh, these are called Perfect Pollock Portions. Uh, <laughs> they are cut to be a consistent size, and right now, where they're finding a wonderful home is in uh, uh, schools across the country. There is a group called the Menus of Change University Research Collaborative. It's a partnership between the Culinary Institute of America and Stanford University to try to use dining halls on college campuses as learning laboratories so students can learn about the impact that their dietary choices have on the environment. And while Pollock has a very low carbon footprint, has very low food waste, uh, and, and so this is a product that fits really well with their mission. So why is that? Why does it have a, a smaller carbon footprint than any other fish in the sea? It, it's, again, it's, it's a wild capture fish. So, so right, we're but not so is wild around. salmon. So why pollock? The biomass is, the is biomass. Uh, of, its, of its scale. Uh-huh. And so we're able to harvest that, this fish very efficiently. 
uh, process it very efficiently, uh, fillet it in Alaska, ship it down in container load volumes. All of that uh, results in a very low carbon footprint from harvest to consumer. So you're literally, you know, if you have a gallon of diesel sending a big trawler out there, you're literally getting more biomass per gallon of diesel. That's where the carbon footprint comes in, Exactly right. But where you really see the delta isn't so much against other wild capture fish. It's against uh, foods that you have to feed the animals, for example. So you look at things like beef or lamb or pork or chicken. There's a lot more carbon that goes into them because of the the land utilization, because you have to grow the crops, all those other things. Wild capture fish, obviously, um, their entire rearing is, is, is at sea. And it's also an important distinction between wild and farm fish because you have to go catch the feed for the farm fish just like almost... Like for the dairy cows. and exactly right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're almost doubling down when you end up having to catch fish to feed fish. Mm-hmm. That's what ends up happening. You've got, got a lot of forage fish, and then it's mixed in with soy and on and so forth, and then finally, finally feed it. So that's what makes Alaska Pollock so great. It's in its own environment. The only thing we're really spending is very little diesel, very little hydraulics, very little refrigeration. And when you really look at it, we, we produce the lowest carbon footprint of, of any industrial protein that's out there. Isn't that amazing to think? And what about bycatch? Is that an issue for you guys? It absolutely is. And we're really fortunate in the United States to be under the jurisdiction of the Department of Commerce's uh, NOAA. Uh, They um, uh, do a lot of work to ensure that incidental catch is minimized. Uh, We are are referred to as one of the cleanest fisheries because we have a very low percentage of incidental catch. You know, it's been a struggle for years. I've been trying to, you know, out there with Chef Terry talking about Pollock as an alternative food source. But it just doesn't move very, very fast. So what's the, what's the issue? What's the marketing issue around Pollock? We like to say it was a protein hidden in plain sight. Uh, it is a perfect protein in many respects. But, yes, it's, it's often been an ingredient in further processed and branded products. So what we've done at Gap is work hard to work with those brand partners to move the name Wild Alaska Pollock to front of pack. And you actually do see it out in the marketplace called out by name much more today than you, than you did historically. In fact, next week is our annual meeting. We'll release results based on nationwide consumer surveys that will show that not only Americans have a higher awareness of Wild Alaska Pollock than ever before, they have a higher favorability and more intent to buy than ever before. So we've worked really hard with those brands like the McDonald's, like the Gordons, all of those that bring Wild Alaska Pollock to market in the various forms to start calling the fish out because that is a wonderful story to tell right the other thing tom is you got to remember that when we first started this pollock fishery in the united states here back in the 70s it was pretty much done by the japanese and the russians and on and so forth over in our water previous to that so we were trying to find markets for the fish and so we were just putting it in place there's such a huge biomass out there yeah you have to find a big market exactly so so we harvest over three billion pounds of wild alaska pollock a year out of the bering sea that's just the american side of it and then you got some of the russian side of it that, that also does about another three billion pounds mm-hmm. so for a lot of times you're just you trying to Billion? With billion, a B, yeah. with a B. And that's sustainably wow. harvest. I've been in the fishery now over 40 years, and we've been doing this consistently every year for 40 years. And our science science follows it and, and says we are doing it properly. Mm-hmm. So this, that's all been part of it is, is taking it from more of a commodity into a little bit more of restaurants or, or, or further on the plates of, of people. But before, it was just sticking it anywhere we could get it. Right. Well, Mrs. Paul's fish sticks to, yeah, you know, you uh, everywhere. That's what... If you're having that kind of fish at home, like pre-breaded fish or this or that, it's most likely wild Alaskan pollock. And to give you a sense of scale, it is the most consumed wild-caught fish on the planet. It's also the largest certified sustainable fishery on the planet. So things that we can be really proud of. But, yes, the scale is huge. And in terms of product forms, uh, one thing that we always have to mention as well is surimi seafood. Surimi Mm -hmm. seafood demand is up 
exponentially in the United States right now. And our brand partners like the Crab Classics, the Crab Delights, they're doing quite well in the marketplace too, calling out the fact that it's not imitation seafood, it's real seafood from a wonderful fish called Wild Alaska Pollock with a great story to tell. Right. So when you see imitation crab, like every California roll that you buy at every 7-Eleven or wherever they're selling them, it's all Surimi, it's all Wild Alaska Pollock, hopefully, uh, but it's got like zero crab in it. In many cases, that's right. Now, some yeah. some of the product lines, it depends, uh, will we'll mix in some lobster, some crab, uh, or it will be a 100% Wild Alaska Pollock-based ceramic seafood. Uh-huh. You'll just have to look at the package. Just have to look how much red food coloring to make it look like crab there is, right? So. <laughs> Tomato does wonderful things. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, the thing about ceramic is, is <clears throat> with, with some of the crab quotas being down here now, it's, it's going to be down. Fun. How about out? Now, just about out. Exactly. Yeah. And so we need to focus on where, where, where can we give that flavor and that profile that, uh, in, in, in a pattern or, or in a crab stick that's going to be similar, similar type of deal. Mm-hmm. So that's part of our deal is to make sure that our uh, consumers ask for that. And, and we develop that within the fishery here that we can give a great, a, a really good product that, that will replace that or help. Cool. So when we come back, we're going to cook a little bit of Pollock. I've started it here. You probably heard it on my microphone. Pamela's going to taste it. And uh, we're going to talk about techniques of cooking Pollock because it it does have a water release that goes on, um, unlike other fish. So we're going to talk about that in the next segment on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. We're back in the kitchen. Pamela is cutting up some beautiful wild Alaskan pollock that looks to me personally like it was cooked perfectly. I wonder if it was or not. Uh, our guests are Craig Morris, Chief Executive Officer and Association of the Association of Genuine Alaska Pollock Producers, GAP, and Bob Distel, uh, of uh, he's the CEO, Global Seas, and Chairman of GAP. Uh, gentlemen, we talked a little bit about the the biomass and the efficiency, the carbon footprint. We didn't really talk a lot about how the people listening to our show can cook this product. Uh, as you saw what I just did with it, I took those beautiful kind of fresh chilled fillets that you brought. I put a hot pan. I put olive oil in the pan, and I used my pizza spice, which has got heavy garlic and onion and fennel and stuff. Uh, and I did a sear on the one side, and the, the fillet is about a half inch to three quarters of an inch thick turned it over and pretty much turned the fire off and let the residual heat heat that fish fillet all the way through and that's how you cook any sort of fish that is um that you want to have kind of a medium center a warm center but without when you cook fish on two sides super hot like you're searing it on one side and then you turn it over and you sear it on the bottom you can't stop the heat right we talk about this all the time here in classes at the hot stove and on the show you can't stop it from continuing to cook that's just there's no way to stop that intense heat so you cook it on medium on one side and then literally almost on nothing on the other side and let the pan kind of warm it through i mean let's face it you could eat it raw if you wanted to so there's no reason to overcook the fish and that's the number one complaint i hear about people is like my fish is always dry well that's why you're cooking it too hot 
what have you seen out there, uh, Craig, that uh, in the marketplace of great ways to cook the fish and why does it cook so beautifully i mean it takes any seasoning yeah so we we like to say that wild alaska pollock has five pillars it's always wild it's wild wild caught it's always from alaska it's got the sustainability story we talked about it's got that mild taste and versatility and it's got the nutrition pillar uh as well it is a a unbelievably lean protein it's 20 grams of protein uh less than one gram of fat per serving uh, so it makes it uh, something that when you do cook it, as you said, uh, you need to be uh, careful to make sure that you hit your endpoint temperature right. And, and, you, and it does lend itself very well to flavoring. On so, our website, so go back, Alaska, stop there for one second. Yep. You say that. So what is black cod, for example? Black cod looks similar, but it's a much fattier fish, right? And a much str- stronger pl- flavor profile. That's exactly right. right. And so but it has a, you just said 20 grams of protein in a serving to one gram of fat. What would... A regular cod be? Uh, it can go to three to six, three depending to six. on if it's farm-raised or wild-caught. Right. Yeah. Okay. I was just curious. I, I don't know that. So continue with that story then. No. So on, on our website, alaskapollock.org, we have a, a whole recipe page. that, In fact, Chef Terry uh, has, has a couple of recipes on there to help people understand when they start to see this fish in its fillet form in the market, how to prepare it. And in every case, uh, it, it really responds well to very bold flavors uh, because that, I think, really makes it uh, sort of a base to bring whatever the, the culinary flair is that you're trying to bring out. Right. And so many people that don't like fish, they don't like fishy fish is what they are mistaking about not liking fish. And so this is the fish for them. It is it's not a fishy fish at all. It's not a coincidence that virtually all the seafood served in schools is, is typically a mild-tasting fish. Mm-hmm. And uh, while Alaska Pollock is the number one fish purchased by the U.S. government for federal feeding programs like the National School Lunch Program, because it's very, it's very approachable. Mm-hmm. And we like to say that while Alaska Pollock is a fish that you can get kids to start to eat, to put them hopefully on a, on a life journey of healthy seafood consumption, which is what National Seafood Month is all about. Right. Exactly right, Craig. So I've, I've got two young kids. I've got an eight-year-old and a ten-year-old. I got them started in fish at around two years old, and they absolutely started with the ultimate fish stick by trying seafoods. But uh, they started eating that, and now they're into all sorts of fish. Thanks. Watching you, Tom, is, is, is inspires them all the time to eat more fish, eat more fish. And obviously, today's today's world is 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 better nutritionally to eat more fish. Salmon, salmon. We just had our biggest salmon run in all of Alaska in. In hundreds of 70 years. million or 80 million fish 78 like million yeah. fish were caught yeah. exactly unbelievable so now they're now now they love salmon and they catch salmon. we, we go for salmon fishing every year too so it's just not wild alaska pollock in our in our family it's every kind of seafood that we mm-hmm. get but but it still comes back to we love wild alaska pollock yeah pamela you um, lament sometimes so you're a big fish person uh, yes uh, you lament that it's you just can't find it in the marketplace uh, especially at your the seafood shop that you buy from I'm uh, with Fresh Fish up in Ballard, and I, uh, you know, they don't have everything. You have to be willing to buy what's fresh and in stock that day. And I, I want them to have wild Alaska Pollock, please. Well, it's most likely you'd have to find it in the freezer section, right? They'd yes. have to bring in yeah. portions or... Alaska seafood in, in general is, is frozen in Alaska, and we have a, a big campaign that we're working on with the Alaska Seafood Marketing Institute about cook it from frozen. You know, we want consumers to know that frozen seafood is in many cases more fresh than chilled seafood. Yes. And so one of the things that we're really proud of is bringing these portions in frozen form so that you can cook them even from frozen or thaw them out yourself and, and then cook them, and they'll be just as fresh as they came right out of the ocean. And I could tell you, some from being in this business for over 40 years, 
back 40 years ago, refrigeration wasn't that very very good exactly. in, in the industry, good point. right? And so we're bringing in fish. Even salmon's brought in days old and then finally put in RSWs and finally finally put in freezers. So we've all learned how to take care of our fish better. All the fish now, pretty much in uh, the salmon guys, they're, they're, they're kept in their RSW holds. Uh, they uh, refrigerated seawater, right? Refrigerated seawater, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And that's what ends up happening in Alaska. You have... Uh, some factory trawlers that bring the fish fish up and right away within four hours are put in the freezers, fro- froze on board, flayed and frozen on board, and then delivered. Uh, the catcher vessels out, out of, of Alaska also bring on board. They put it into refrigerated seawater uh, down to 32, t- uh, 29 to 32 degrees, bring them back in the shore plants within 48 hours, and then that's where they're flayed and processed mm-hmm. in, into various forms. So you literally, when you buy a piece of wild Alaska pollock, you're getting a two-day-out-of-the-ocean fish at the most. At the very most. Yeah. Exactly. you got to remember, it's kept down to temperature during those two days. Right. So, I mean, if you're going to any fish market in Seattle, it would be very unusual to get any fresh fish that's less than two days out of the water. And frankly, you know, they're, they don't need to be. That's not, that's not necessarily an indictment of the fresh fish because fresh fish, if it's handled properly, can be seven or eight or even ten days out of the water. Uh, what you want to do is like, you want to run your finger over it, right? If you, if your <laughs> people will let you, if you run your finger over a salmon fillet, for example, and it comes up with orange meat on your finger, ah. it's been out of the water a bit. So it's starting to uh, decompose. Deteriorate. Deteriorate. Yeah, yeah. So fresh fish really does hold together and it's beautiful and shiny and luscious. And so, yeah, I like to ha- see that sheen that, yeah. that where it almost looks alive. So when you see Pollock, uh, if you went into the, you go to uh, fish, fresh fish up on 80th and 24th Our Central Ballard. Market. They're what are you going to do with it? You see this fish here. Did you try it? Not yet, but oh, thanks I, for your support. Your, the website's excellent. And, of course, Terry's uh, recipe caught my eye because it had harissa. Oh, yeah. And olive tapenade. Like, what a fabulous accompaniment. But there's a lot of fabulous recipes on that site. So is that the one that would drive you to the fish? You would, yes. That sounds good to you? Absolutely. A little couscous? With uh, lemon butter couscous. Mm-hmm. That's a th- perfect meal. You must have. You've been eating Pollock for a long time, both of you guys. So what's your favorite Pollock pr- uh, preparation? Oh, that's great. Um, we actually have a campaign. We have six different influencers we're working with this year. Oh, uh, no. That influencers. Doing, they're doing amazing <laughs> things with the fish. Uh, one of them is coming to our annual meeting next week, uh, a chef, Antonio Lafaso. Uh, she does a wild Alaska Pollock Melanese that is lightly breaded and cooked in a skillet that is absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, so I'm really excited. We're going to actually serve that for lunch uh, at the meeting, and uh, I think everybody's just going to get blown away. that it, it responds really well to that, I think, that preparation. You're right, Craig. I mean, a lot of it comes with really bold flavors. Personally, for me, I'm a very simple type person. I'm a purist. I like fish about what the fish is all about. So if I do my fish, a little bit of uh, olive oil, a little bit of lemon, and, and serve it up. Mm-hmm. Um, salmon, pretty much the same thing, too. That, that, that way I, f- I find out whether it's fresh or not pretty darn quick. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't want to find out after you've cooked no, it. No, <laughs> but you can, you, you can spell it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, you try to find that out before you buy it. That's right. <laughs> what uh, is the retail per pound normally? Typically, wild escapolic is an ingredient in a further processed product. So, so the, so you the, don't the prices so it varies, really vary. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, really vary. Uh, if you find an individually quick frozen fillet, it's really more dependent on the market you're in. Uh, if it's a more upscale yes. setting, it's going to have a more upscale price. Well, if you're going to make Milanese out of it, which is a breaded fillet, basically, you really, in my mind, on this particular fish, you have to figure out a way to maybe do a little salting and letting the fish settle because Pollock carries a lot of moisture. 
and then because you don't want the moisture to then wipe out your breading, you know, make it all soggy and stuff. So I'm curious what she did with her Milanese that because Milanese it kind of has to say crisp, right? It's, all right, thank you, gents. We've been talking with Craig Morris and Bob Desutel of the uh, Association of Genuine Alaskan Pollock Producers, part of our annual Seafood Month uh, here in National Seafood Month here in the Hot Stove Society Kitchen Show. When we come back, food quotes and their authors. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. This is taking the place of trivia today. Today it is. All right, good. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. I'd rather be on a day with my mind on God in the middle of his creation. In an old John boat with my Zepco rod for some private conversation. There might be a few people talking bad about me when they see that I'm a missing. But I'd rather be on a leg with my mind on God than in church with my mind on fishing. Well, I believe I'll have me a beer. Cause it ain't sold in heaven. You gotta buy it right here. And you can't take it with you whenever you here we are. It's the Hot Stove Kitchen on Cairo Radio. Chef Terry is visiting Mama Jeanette in Nantes, France. And so uh, Pamela, our producer, is stepping to the mic instead. And uh, she is taking liberty with our show, which she once in a while does. You know, our, the Tasty Trivia segment is the most popular segment of our show. And, I know. And uh, so what are we doing here? This is a twist on trivia. I have um, identified some famous food quotes because food is something that everybody loves to talk about. And these are either from chefs or comedians or actors. So I'm going to read the quote and give you three choices for who you think said this quote. You know, I've said some pretty famous things myself. I wonder, yes, I, I, wonder, didn't, I didn't include I you I wonder today, if one of my quotes is in there. <laughs> Not, today, Not today, but we'll build a whole segment around that. Oh, great. <laughs> So we'll start, uh, let's start with Lily. And um, she's going to get five quotes, and then we'll see how. Are you going to keep score today? You want me to? Yeah. Oh, that's probably cheating. Lily, number one. My weaknesses have always been food and men in that order. Who do you think said that? Alice Waters, Dolly Parton, or Phyllis Stiller? I'm going to guess Phyllis Stiller. She would have said that, but it was Dolly Parton. Okay. Number two, (laughs) never eat more than you can lift. Do you think that was Chris Rock, Miss Piggy, or Bobby Flay? Oh, gosh, More than you can lift. Oh. Like as in lifting weights? Yeah. Hmm. I'll say Miss Piggy. Yay! This one is very philosophical. Okay. Literature. Uh, One cannot think well love well, sleep well, if one has not dined well. Would that be Padma Lakshmi, Virginia Woolf, or Kat Cora? I'm going to say Virginia Woolf. You are correct. Yay! Good job. You know, Virginia Woolf, she said that a long time ago. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Both Padma and Kat are still kicking. Uh, Number four, uh, sharing food with another human being is an intimate act that should not be indulged in lightly. Nigella Lawson, MFK Fisher, or Marilyn Monroe? 
Oh, I'm going to say Nigella. She would have said that, but it was, in fact, MFK Fisher. Oh, it would help if I knew who that was. And this one, (laughs) all you need is love, but a little chocolate now and then doesn't hurt. And our choices are Charles Schultz, Paula Dean, or Jay Leno. I'll go out on a limb. You're two out of four right now. This this could take you over the top. Okay. Um, I'll say Charles Schultz. Yay! Wow. I definitely would have gone Paula Dean there, so... I think if it, she said butter that instead of chocolate. Yeah, that or yeah. Mayonnaise. <laughs> yeah. mayonnaise. Yeah. Good job, Lily. All right, Renee and Matthew, you ready for this? So three out of five yeah. for Lily. So she's in the lead. Uh, there is no sight on earth more appealing than the sight of a woman making dinner for someone she loves. Do you think that would have been Woody Allen, Thomas Wolfe, or Tom Colicchio? Who's Thomas Wolfe? You know? Matthew says Thomas Wolfe. He's correct, of course. Oh <laughs> wow. Nice job, Matthew. Uh, I love this one. Always serve too much hot fudge sauce on hot fudge sundaes. It makes people overjoyed and puts them in your debt. Do you think that was Judith only, Roseanne Barr, or Wolfgang Puck? We'll go with Roseanne Barr. It was Judith only, oh. but I could hear Roseanne <laughs> saying that in my head. <laughs> Number three. So, so do we have any idea who some of these people are? Like, like oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they're friends of mine. Yeah. Is Judith uh, Mr. Own the yeah. cookbook author's wife? Yeah. Oh, okay. And who's Robert? I, I never knew who Robert Wolf was. A famous writer, Thomas. <laughs> or Thomas Wolf. Okay. You don't need a silver fork to eat good food. Paul, a silver Stone. spoon does help, though. <laughs> or Eric Repair. Or Bob Hope. What was the first one? Well, no, what Paul was Paul Prudhomme? Paul Prudhomme. Oh, I'll go with him. Yeah! <laughs> oh, that was rotten, dastardly behind the scenes. I didn't realize what I was up against here today. Cooking is all about people. Food is maybe the only universal thing that really has the power to bring everyone together. No matter what culture, everywhere around the world, people eat together. Do you think that was said by Guy Fieri, Ina Garden, or Madonna? Matthew says Madonna. Oh, Guy Fieri said oh. it, but I wish Madonna would say <laughs> that. Um, you know, Madonna ate at my restaurant. I've, I've fed Madonna before. Ooh. Oh, when, if you remember, you know, Matthew wasn't alive yet, but uh, <laughs> uh, Desperately Seeking Susan, when that movie was oh. out, she came in the Cafe Sport. Remember that? Wow. Yeah. No. I do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Number five, the only time to eat diet food is while you're waiting for the steak to cook. (laughs) (laughs) By a beloved chef, would it have been Julia Child, Jerry Seinfeld, or James Beard? James Beard. Julia Child! (laughs) All right. So uh, you got two out of five, so Lily crushed you. (laughs) Uh, She got three out of five. So, so uh, now I'm just going to put all the misery, put them all in misery when I do mine. You t- t- keep track of the answer so Tom doesn't cheat. See how many he yeah, gets correct. I'm a big cheater. Number one, everything you see I owe to spaghetti. Would that have been? You don't no? even have to tell me. What's her name? The Italian actress, uh, Sophia Loren. Correct. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's a classic. It could be that I have a art piece of Sophia Loren that I yeah. I cherish. She's spectacular. I would love to have eaten some spaghetti with her. Me too. Yeah. 
All right. I believe it's a cook's moral obligation to add more butter, given the chance. Would that have been Michael Ruhlman, Emeril Lagasse, or Anthony Bourdain? Anthony Bourdain. Michael Ruhlman. So that's a, that's a, I didn't get that one right. Is that correct? (laughs) Just want to make sure I wrote down correctly. You didn't get it. Uh, Number three, I only drink champagne on two occasions, when I'm in love and when I'm not. (laughs) Would that be Jada? That's my kind of person. Jada De Laurentiis, Sharon Stone, or Coco Chanel? Coco Chanel, for sure. Absolutely correct. For sure. Number four. So I've got two out of three. I know. Be careful. I'm a dangerous man right now. There's nothing better than cake than more cake. So who said that, Jacques Pepin, Harry Truman, or Prince Harry? I'm going to say Harry Truman. Correct. Yeah. You're, you're a history student. That's, that's kind of a Midwest kind of thought. I love this final one. Okay, I'm three out of four. I'm just saying, Lily, Ooh, you got somebody on your tail. Uh-oh. Ask not what you can do for your country. Ask what's for lunch. <laughs> Would that have been Gordon Ramsay, Orson Welles, or Frank Sinatra? Frank Sinatra. It's Orson Welles. No way. All right, Lily and I tied, but that means that everyone else wins. Yay! Congratulations. Enjoy a stroll uh, for a spice rub in our gift shop when you are uh, after the show. Thank you all for playing. Thank you. Uh, next hour is going to be jam-packed. Just letting you know that right now. We're going to talk to the Chef Megan from Bourbon Steak, and we're going to uh, do some burning questions right here on the Hot Stove Society Show uh, on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. Yeah. Lemon tree, lemon tree, very pretty and lemon flowery sweet. Waiting for the dinner bell to do the bell thing. Dinner bell, dinner bell ring. I've been leaving. Fall is time for a beautiful, creamy, delicious uh, polenta. And we're going to try and make some of that right here at this segment at the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo Radio. Thank you for joining us today. We have a pretty tepid audience today. They've, uh, they, have you guys had breakfast yet? <laughs> or you're just sated? That's what's going on, yes. Uh, I'm Tom Douglas. I'm here with Pamela Hinckley at the mic. Hello, hello. sitting in for our good pal, Chef Terry, who's in France at the moment, visiting Mama Jeanette uh, on his way back from Morocco. Can't wait to hear his recent couscous stories. I know. Probably they'll sound a lot like the last time he went to Morocco and the time before that. He loves Morocco. I know. Yeah, it fits awesome. him perfectly. Yeah. You know, polenta is one of your favorite foods. We've had it all over Italy. Uh, I've had it in my life. Uh, my father-in-law kind of grew up on polenta because he was poor. And his family, that's all they could afford was polenta. So as we got older... And as Jackie and I became a couple and then got married, we would often think we were gourmands and make very delicious polenta. It, it had a revered place on the opening menu of the Dahlia Lounge 34 years ago. I don't remember that preparation. Well, I'm going to go into it in a second. But my father-in-law refused. Every time we made polenta, he refused to eat with us because he just said, you know, it's just got too many bad memories. I, I was too hungry when I had to eat it, and yeah, I had to eat it often. Poor. Yeah, I made him feel poor. Yeah. So wrong. All you got to do is put a lot of rich cream, rich cheese, Pound of Parmesan. rich uh, caramelized onions, and you can feel rich when you're eating polenta instead of feeling poor. So what did you bring for us here today? This is uh, new to the marketplace, and it is actually from Piedmont. 
when you visit that wine region and you start going up into the hills, you'll see a lot of the farmers have corn drying. Mm -hmm. And uh, they've diversified, the farmers who grow grapes have diversified often and have corn as well to make polenta because it goes so perfectly with Nebbiolo. Right. So Nebbiolo is the grape of the region, the overwhelming grape of the region. What do you know uh, is the difference between grits and polenta? The grind. The grind, right? Yeah. And so. yeah how much of the kernel, mm-hmm. the, the uh, coating of the kernel is maintained. Right, exactly. And grits take, you know, depending on the grind on the polenta, the, fa- the smaller the grind, the finer the grind, the faster it cooks. So some of the big chunky polenta can take a half hour to cook. What they often call instant polenta, which is kind of like almost powdered corn. Goes is, so fast. It can be cooked in a minute. Yeah. So, yeah, so there's lots of ways to do it. Uh, let's talk. You're, you're the polenta queen. Let's talk about how your favorite preparation goes. There's, you've got to have a great chicken stock, I think. And start with uh, onions in the pan, chicken stock. And I'm impatient. Even the coarsest polentas, uh, I have never cooked over 15 minutes. But I've had Eric Tanaka make it for me. And he stirred, he's, he's my partner. Just, he's yeah. steering away for like half an hour. So there must be something that develops in the corn. There's no gluten. There's, there's no. Gluten. There's starch. There's starch, starch. Like just like you get cornstarch, right? That's that's in the whole ground polenta. But I'm surprised you start with chicken stock because that's what slows things down, right? Oh, because of the fat. No, the viscosity of the stock is doesn't get absorbed into the corn as quickly generally. So I never start with chicken stock. I start with water, and then I'll reduce chicken stock on the side. And I'll, if I want a chicken stock base, then I'll add the chicken stock later in the cooking. But to me, it cooks much faster just straight up water. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people, a, a classic Italian way is to use milk, to cook it in milk. I love finishing with milk. Uh-huh. You know how they cook like the plain filling in milk where they braise the pork? Yes. Same idea. Yes. I think uh, that cheesy... Dairy infused polenta mm-hmm. is is really sexy. Mm-hmm. I love that. But wow. what was it? Your like? eyes got sparkling there. I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable right now. <laughs> Did you see her cheesy. eyes when she said that? Ooh, oh my god! Cheesy polenta. Now I'm blushing. Uh, tell us how you made it at the Dahlia. So at the Dahlia, at the opening of the Dahlia. So this is a long time ago. Polenta, you know. Kind of rides the wave of food fads sometimes. It was really hot. At that time, it was very popular. It was on every menu, it seemed like. And um, I would take and make polenta, but make a stiff version of it so that when I put it into a cookie sheet, it had a rim, maybe a, like what we call them sheet pans. Uh, it's not like a flat-sided, a flat-edged cookie sheet. Uh, maybe an inch tall at the most. And I spread out my polenta in there and let it set. And now it's firm as a, a rock. And uh, I would take, I called it the galaxy of polenta with uh, braised chanterelle mushrooms or sautéed chanterelle mushrooms. And I would literally take moons and star-shaped cookie cutters Aww. and make uh, all the cutouts. And my, it was like a little, I was just being fun, trying to have fun. And so I called it galaxy and it became our bestseller at the time. So you just take those shapes, it cuts beautifully, and then you grill them yes. or sear them. You, when you grill polenta, like over a charcoal grill or something, it keeps its shape, and you get nice char marks on it. It's delicious and smoky, and, and then I just put a little saute of mushrooms on top. So 
That's gorgeous. What about when we did it? I can't it for, believe of all the... You're such a craftsperson. You don't remember I don't remember I that. I feel devastated by this. Where did that tradition of pouring it right onto the table come from that we did for Christmas one year? It's got to be Pimonte. Yeah. Uh, I would think. I don't know. But uh, our friends Peter and Peggy uh, uh, had a big marble table, a whole slab of marble that you might see in a shop in South Seattle, you know, a whole slab. And so at Christmas time, uh, the tradition happened that we were all around the table, all 20 of us, and in the center of the table, luckily they washed it down. <laughs> the table uh, was clean. But he brought, I, I held the big pot and I poured as Peter scraped out all the polenta and literally onto the dinner table. And then, you know, it kind of firms up. It's not soupy polenta. No. But it's like a medium. It, it, it firms up and you just reach with the spoon. You grab polenta uh, right off the center of the table. And it's such a wonderful sharing holiday. Yeah. And it's easy to amount. garnish. I mean, it could be done right there, but you could also, if you want to have fun with it, if polenta becomes your main, uh, you could put your little bits of roast of osobuco around, you know, veal shank. You can put different kinds of cheese. Uh, you can put um, lots of herbs and just kind of build a plate out of that polenta uh, that is your full dinner. Very nice. Marinated tomatoes. I mean, all sorts of deliciousness could happen on top of there. I think we got to bring back the galaxy the galaxy of polenta. Isn't that the weirdest thing ever? It's, it's the cutest. Yeah. So it goes. You know, that's how life is, right? You, you kind of, it's like fashion or the way you wore your hair. You look at an old picture, you think, did I really do that? Yes, that's how that goes. Uh, up next, it's burning questions time. We're going to uh, take some questions here from our audience. They're going to come up to the mic or just uh, we'll read them off. On the Hot Stove Society show, Cairo Radio, 97.3 FM. Sing for your luncheon and you'll get dinner. Dine with wine of choice. Let me teach you how to eat. Let me teach you how to eat. How to marinate the meat. Let me teach you how to eat. It's a culinary choice. All right, we're back in the hot stove kitchen on Cairo Radio. Pam, I'm going to let you take this segment because I have no idea what you're doing here. Uh, Pam Hinckley, by the way, is uh, Terry Rotoro today. Can yes, I am. Can you speak French? No. Okay, good. I, and you I still, cannot. we don't pronounce Moi aussi. His, his name the way it deserves Thierry, to be pronounced. Rotoro. Yeah, that's yeah, better. Yeah. We've got to up our game on that. Yeah, why not? Because he's important to us. Well, because we have a live audience today. Um, I wanted to hear from them. We did this segment when you were traveling in France. Oh, yeah. When I'm making the, polenta, by the way. I was inspired by our last segment. <laughs> uh, by Terry. And I think it's good to hear what people want to know and what they want to talk to you about because you are a magnificent chef that's made a big impact on Seattle and the well, food I, we eat here. All I got to say is if I was that magnificent, my quotes would have shown up in your, <laughs> in your segment on famous quotes. So I told you I'm going to dedicate uh, a whole segment just mm-hmm. to your quotes. What's the one in that's the near and dear to the hot stove heart? Don't let the recipe box die. I'm with you. With you. I pass it on. Teach your kids your family, rest your family history. Which is why we are so thrilled today to get our first question from Matthew, young Matthew. Young Matthew, you have to jump right up into the mic. See how close I am? What do you want to know, Matthew? Okay, what is your favorite cut of steak and how do you prepare it? 
Ah, I always use star anise. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My favorite cut of steak, and how do I prepare it? Well, there's a a cut of steak kind of called the chef's cut. And it's uh, it's because the butcher's cut uh, was always... the, The butchers could never afford to take out the... Beef tenderloin, you know, they had to sell the expensive cuts because that's how they made their living. So they would eat oftentimes the less expensive cuts. And so in that world lives a hanger steak or a skirt steak. And they, they were kind of always like a, a, almost like a secret, a butcher's secret. And that steak is my favorite because it's really red and uh, the redder the meat, the more kind of bloody, I guess it is, so the more flavor. That's why a flat iron steak has such a nice flavor to it because it's right up by the neck um, joint. It's really red and, and uh, delicious. But so skirt steak is my favorite, and I love to marinate it and then put it on the hottest coals I can get. You know why I do that? Because uh, then I'll get a nice char. Yeah, that's true. I'll get a nice char. But the problem is, like on a one-inch or two-inch thick rib steak, like a... Uh, you can get a nice char on it without overcooking the center. But the skirt steak is only uh, like maybe a half inch thick. So if you get a really hard char on it, or to try and get a hard char on a medium fire, you're going to overcook the steak. So I take it that because it's a thin steak, any thin steak I take and I put it on the hottest fire I can get to get my char before I overcook the center. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you. By the way, you are, uh, I'm assuming this is your mother. You did great on the uh, the quotes. All right. Hey, how are you? Good. So you have an amazing amount of seafood here on the West Coast. It's been my experience that a lot of chefs on the East Coast, they think their uh, products are superior to the West Coast mm-hmm. in being here. I mean, is there anything on the East Coast that you would bring in, like blue crab as opposed to Dungeness crab or Maine Lobster as opposed to the spiny lobsters here. Or, or as opposed to king crab. or so. Right. Well, I think the short answer is no for a couple of reasons. One is there's really nothing better uh, either way. Uh, I'm a local person, so I, I would eat locally. I wouldn't personally bring in a bunch of Dungeness crab to Boston either. So it's like I, I tend to eat as local as I can, uh, whether I'm in Sardinia or whether I'm in Boston or Seattle. So that's kind of the overriding question or answer to that. Uh, are there s- seafoods back there that I dream of? You know, having been on the East Coast uh, when I was six to twelve or six to eighteen years old, you know, back there, if you go into a seafood store, you you literally are going to find five different kinds or six different kinds of shrimp and you know crab meat. The thing is, they fished out all the crab. So all the crab meat, or not all of it, but lots of the crab meat that you go to Phillips Crab House at Ocean City, Maryland, you know, 500-seat restaurants, they're all using Indonesian crab. They're not using local crab. Correct. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I don't crave that. Uh, that. That is not, I wouldn't go back there for that. Once in a while, you can find fresh blue, but a lot of times that's coming from Louisiana. The Maryland and the East Coast crab and blue crab industry is pretty much gone. If I'm going up north, I think the dry pack scallops from Pam's area of growing up, the Boston area... Cape Cod are fabulous. I miss those. Yeah. They could be fabulous here, too, if they were handled properly. So they're, uh, a lot of the ones you see are pumped up with TSP, and it's all intent to make them white and fresh, or not white and plump, kind of like me, 
white and plump. Um, but just when you, like a scallop. <laughs> just That's like what a I'm going to start calling him. But my little scallop. When you cook those, the problem is, and they do the same the crab meat, uh, the Indonesian crab meat. When you cook them, all that moisture wants to come out, and they, and you'll see in the seafood case, you'll see in the bottom of the bowl of scallops, um, you'll see just this milky white water, and that's from the TSP. So and it's hard to put a sear on it that way too, right? Totally, it just yeah. bleeds out. Yeah, that's why when you see seared scallops, it's almost always dry pack, so that nothing's been done to them, they're, and they're and they're fabulous. Uh, the one fish that I really like on the East Coast that I wish we could have here is lemon sole. It's a little bit like Dover sole in Dover. When I had my first Dover sole in Dover, I said, "Really, am I going to eat this cliche of Dover sole? Unbelievable." Really good. And we have petroli, which is super nice. But we also have a ton of gray sole. And you've probably bought that just as mush. Too much. So I, I don't like it. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. All right. Awesome. We have Thank one you. more. We have another question. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Hi, Chef. So I have to stir my polenta. Hold on. Okay. <laughs> no sticking to the pan. <laughs> we have two minutes. Well, let's hear it. Okay. My question is about music. So Yay! do you have a favorite music style, band, genre that you like to listen to while you cook? Maybe uh, music that inspires you? Hmm. That would be. <laughs> yes, I certainly do. Uh, and it's uh, really fun, I think, to kind of theme your music to the kind of food that you're making in, in the kitchen, especially when you're cooking with other people. It's kind of a bring together moment. Uh, I do have a restaurant called the Carlisle Room across from the Paramount Theater. And my entry music, you know, I'm a diva. I don't know if you know that or not, but I I, I, we're, we're starting to get the drift on that. Yeah. <laughs> when I come into when I come into my class, when I'm teaching class here at the hot stove, I have entry music. Wow. I have two things on my writer because Pamela Pamela knows she has to manage my writer. <laughs> I have a martini 15 minutes before class, and I have Brandy Carlisle entry music called the story. And that's my music. Lasting. Uh, so I don't necessarily oh, okay. cook to it because I'm giving a, a class, but I enter to it. And when you become a diva in the kitchen, <laughs> you too can pick your own entry music. Well, I'm far from it, but <laughs> <laughs> I will keep that in mind. Wait. Thank you. Who were you listening to? Sarah Bar- Barellis? Yeah, yeah. You said that's a new favorite? Oh, no, she's not a new favorite. She's an old favorite, but um, she also wrote the music to Waitress, the musical. And I love a couple of the songs from that show because, Pam, you know I love a good show tune. I know. Whenever I can hear one. So Hamilton is usually blasting here, too, the soundtrack. If you were to say um, Desert Island Disc for, while I'm cooking, it's the, it's the uh, soundtrack for The Big Night, the movie The Big Night. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's yeah. a Desert Island cooking track for me. So, Thank you. When we come back, we've got uh, Megan Vaughn of uh, Michael Mina's Bourbon Steak here in downtown Seattle, new restaurant. We're going to talk a little bit about steakhouses and her and the whole business. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Can't see that, couldn't be me I'd have to talk about yams and your big fat hams 
It excites me so because I know you're my mate. Fat and forty, but Lordy, you're my mate. All right, here we go. It's Back time. We're going to talk steak. We're going to talk steak. We're heading into the fall. Heavier, lustier meals sound appropriate. And uh, we've invited Chef Megan Vaughn of Michael Mina's Bourbon Steak, uh, downtown Seattle. What are you, 4th and Union? 4th and... 4th and Pike. 4th and Pike. Mm-hmm. Uh, down uh, right in midtown Seattle. Uh, lovely little restaurant. Used to be called RN74. Correct. Right? And now mm-hmm. it's called Bourbon Steak. Uh, Megan, you've brought yourself from L.A. all the way up here. That is correct. Tell us about you and how you ended up here in downtown Seattle and and uh, your history. And maybe uh, you could, is there a story behind your tattoos? I have always wondered this when people have as many, uh, have like b- body art that, mm-hmm. that's dramatic like yours. Is it represent different parts of your life? You know, you I, know, I know about you. I Megan. just like. I sort of started getting into tattoos a little bit later on. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a couple when I was in my 20s, but I mostly got all of this in my 30s. Oh, really? And so I literally just finished doing my back. My whole back is done. Uh-huh. And it's just, I I love being able to wear like a piece of art on right. me. And it's going to be with me forever. I know a lot, that sort of turns a lot that of people off. That freaks some people out, yeah. But for me, like, my ta- I think my t- tattoos are so pretty and beautiful mm-hmm. that it doesn't bother me, and I actually love it. So it really just is me wanting to have artwork on me. So they honestly. don't each represent, like, a, an important part of your life more so? No, not I was really. I about that. Yeah, so. it's just more like I vibed really well with the tattoo tattoo artist that I had and we just sort of collaborated uh-huh. and it's just sort of it's what lovely. they chose to do. Yeah, yeah thank Pam you so knows much. it right away too. Thank you. Uh, getting back to the real yeah. reason you're here. I don't <laughs> know what I got off on that, but uh, you came up from LA to mm-hmm. chef at this restaurant. Yep. And so tell us about your history and what you brought know, you here? It's funny. I actually didn't grow up cooking at all. I pretty much ate spaghetti, ketchup, and chicken fingers. Uh-huh. <laughs> like that was like my diet as a kid. You just and Matthew was crying behind you, yeah. right? <laughs> so uh, that was what my parents gave me. And um, getting into high school, like I loved. I started working in restaurants, and I loved it. So um, actually, but I was working front of the house. Mm-hmm. And then in college, I was a business major. I wasn't really feeling the business major aspect because I always knew I was going to go into restaurants eventually. Um, And my mom was just like, hey, why don't you give cooking a try? Because I've always loved the hustle and bustle. I've always loved the lifestyle. And so I went to Johnson & Wales. I was going to James Madison University, and then I transferred to Johnson & Wales, where I just picked it up. I loved it, and I just stuck with it. And I've been cooking for almost... 16 years now in wow. kitchens. Yeah. yeah. And so, so you're an East Coast person. East Coast. Yeah. Uh-huh. So um, I went to Johnson & Wales in South Carolina and North Carolina. Charleston was, I mean, Charleston is a great food city now. It was still a great food city back then. Mm-hmm. And they had such a, you know, so many candidates to work in um, restaurants because there was a school there. So started there. And then from there, went to North Carolina, North Carolina, I went to Hawaii and I started my career with Wolfgang Puck at Spago there mm-hmm. and was there for about four years, moved to Los Angeles. That's on the island of Maui, I think. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I went to Los Angeles, started working at Cut Steakhouse there with him. And then I moved back to the East Coast for a little bit in D.C., moved back to Los Angeles where I picked up with Wolfgang Puck again and sort of just stuck with him. And then pandemic hit, so sort of we closed down. 
sort of like was rethinking what I wanted to do, but I still stayed in the kitchen. And then I recently just got this job with Michael Mina at the beginning of January of this past year. Mm -hmm. And I actually started in corporate and I was going to like different properties, helping open, helping fix. And then, you know, they're like, Hey, Seattle really needs a chef. Would you like to accept that position? And I did because I eventually wanted to be an executive chef with a restaurant and so I thought this was a great opportunity just for me to get in the door, and then I would like to stay here for a little bit and then just see what, where else I go. Right. And so what's the difference as a traveling chef that's always fixing issues and being the executive chef? Is there a big difference in the work? Well, I mean, when, when you're corporate, like every restaurant is yours mm-hmm. when you step into that door. It's, it's definitely a harder life. It's, it's a road life. Like, you know, I, I have a wife now and it was really tough on, you know, just the relationship and her. So, which is why one of the biggest reasons why I decided to take a more permanent To position. calm down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because, I mean, I've been traveling a long time and, you know, I'm finally a unit with somebody and mm-hmm. it's important them to be part of that decision with me. So it is different in the fact that it is your restaurant, but when you're more like an executive chef of your own restaurant, it's really, it really is your baby. Like you really take care of everyone there, the financials, you know, everything that involves with it. And it, you really invest so much corporate, you do the exact same thing, but it's just a little bit different when you are in the day to day every day with the same people mm-hmm. making and and you 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 grow like very strong relationships with the people that you work with, which I really appreciate and I really like, um, which is one reason why I do like being, you know, at a more permanent spot because I can actually see the growth within my line cooks. I can see the growth in their personal and professional relationships. Like that to me is really important. It's uh, restaurant life can be tough on relationships, oh, whether you're traveling or terrible. not, right? Because you tend, if you're working with a, we'll call them civvies, a civilian who has yeah. a real nine to five job, and you're working restaurants, which is nighttime nine to five yeah. and weekends and all the rest. Uh, it's it's hard to make a life out of it. It is incredibly hard. Um, you know, actually, one of my really good friends, she uh, that I work in a restaurant with, she she called them day walkers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's incredibly hard, and it and it's you know I've definitely had a lot of failed relationships because you know when. Everyone is at home for the holidays when everyone is off on the weekends, when everyone is getting to go out to dinner. I am at the restaurant constantly. Like I probably haven't seen my family in about two years because of the traveling, because, you know, I've had to stay, you know, at the restaurant like during the holidays. So it is very tough on your significant other. It has to be somebody very special that. You know, can, or somebody in the biz. You're right. Or yeah. somebody in the business that, yeah. that, that knows and that can like, you know, sort of withstand that, or you know, works type the of same hours. Yeah. All that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Luckily, my well, wife good for is, you for yeah. figuring it out. Yeah. I mean, she's yeah. Maggie's amazing. Like she's a hairstylist. So she sort of knows the hospitality industry a little mm-hmm. bit. But, um, works weekends, mm-hmm, works yeah. weekends, mm-hmm. sometimes work nights. So Certainly. she gets it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, good for you for finding that part of your life. Okay, so now you're you're here. You're living in South Lake Union, the hustle mm-hmm. and bustle of the tech area. Um, you're now running uh, Michael Mina's Bourbon Steak. Mm-hmm. What is it what like you- to transition from a Wolfgang Puck environment to a Michael Mina environment? 
I mean, hey, so can I just put in there so our listeners know, Michael Mina has what fifty restaurants around the country or oh, so. Yeah, I mean, maybe, yeah. maybe. Wolfgang and, had the same, although he slimmed yes. down a bit. Slimming down uh, a little bit, but so these are inter- international corporate chefs. Yes, yeah. I mean, they're both very celebrity figureheads. Um, it's very similar in the fact that you know the product. At Wolfgang Puck or Michael Mina, the product is going to be the star. The product is you get the best of the best, which is really, really nice. It's really nice to work with that product, and it's really nice to be in an environment when that is actually important, where they're okay with me paying a little bit more as long as it's, like, the best for the guests coming into the restaurant. That is so good to hear. Yeah, so that... I, I worry yeah. that in no. that environment... That, no, um, like, they really, they really care. I mean, Chef Michael Mina, I've never you sort of worked with for a chef like that because he really genuinely cares about the guests and everybody that comes into that restaurant. He gives out cards with his cell phone number on Whoa. it. Whoa. Like, and that's insane to me because I've never really known any celebrity chef to do that. And he actually will, he called me like a couple weekends ago to tell me I was doing a good job. Like, that's really nice, you know, for him to... it's more than nice. Yeah, yeah, for him to like take an interest and to to recognize like, you know, just anybody that is working for him, that to me is huge, you know, so... and. Right now, like, I just think it's really nice when you have chefs that actually care about their employees because I feel like the hospitality industry has been so exploited over the Mm -hmm. past, you know, however long. And I think we're finally moving into the direction where, you know, people are getting paid a livable wage. They're getting benefits. They're getting all these things that other industries have had for so long. And it's finally time for people in this industry to get them. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been saying it all along as a former line cook myself that, the idea that these line cooks are now making, you know, including tips, I get it, but anywhere from 30 to $40 sometimes, mm-hmm. it's about time. It's yeah. awesome for what uh, the, well, the effort that... you've worked that, towards that for a long time. Yeah, but it's not... You, you can't do it alone. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you the industry has to move that direction or you're just not competitive. You're, you know, all that kind of thing. But when we come back, let's move on to steak. Perfect. Yeah. And what makes... Um, uh, bourbon steak a little different and what a home cook should look for when they're buying steak at a butcher shop or a grocery store. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. The rubber band, it ain't the meat, it's the motion. Makes your daddy want to rock. It ain't the meat, it's the motion. It's the movement that gives it the sock. And we're back. The final segment here at the Hot Stove Society show on Cairo Radio. Pamela, thank you for uh, sitting in for Chef Terry today. Absolutely. All right. Megan Vaughn is still here from Michael Mina's Bourbon Steak down at 4th and Pike in downtown Seattle. And, you know, we talked a little bit about your history and the interesting parts about being a chef and relationships. And But let's uh, our relationship with the food mm-hmm. is this whole segment's idea here. So... Uh, there's a lot of steakhouses in Seattle. Daniels, Matt, yep. uh, Ruth's. Uh, everywhere you look, there's a steakhouse. 
what makes bourbon steak a little bit different? I think one thing that makes bourbon steak a little bit different is the fact that we're not just a steakhouse. Like, we do have amazing steaks. We have a great selection. But we also have a variety of other things if you're not into steaks. Like, we do, we can do vegetarian plates. We can do vegan plates. We can do all these things that... You know, if a guest wants, when they come in, we'll we'll do it for them. We'll accommodate them. Um, we have, you know, fish dishes. We have chicken. We have other things that is just not just steak and potatoes. Mm-hmm. That I think is really important to give you know guests a variety. Have you been up? Uh, there's a local guy, uh, Kurt Denmeyer, who has what I consider the best beef in town, the Wagyu Mishima, Mishima mm-hmm. Reserve, right yep. up there at the butcher's table. Have you? Tried that beef yet? I have had that. Yes, I have. Just as a beef, not necessarily. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, it's amazing. Like, I think that any of these, like, you know, Japanese or, you know, blend of American and Japanese, like, they're going to be, I mean, they're going to be amazing. Mm -hmm. You know, any type. So here I'm giving you a 16 ounce New York steak. How are you going to cook it? 16 ounce New York steak. I, okay. So we're saying it's probably inch and a half to two inches thick. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So I personally would always try and cook over wood and charcoal. Okay. I just think that flavor profile, that smokiness, that char that you're going to get on the outside, that makes like a steak great. And just salt and pepper, just that that simple seasoning with char, it's, it's, the steak is going to be amazing. Mm-hmm. And so are you uh, on, a, on, a, on a wood fire? Are mm-hmm. you tempering your steak before you start? So, are you, I mean, because I've, I've cooked that same steak from frozen before. So. I mean, honestly, I have too. I think that, you know, when you are, so when you're home cooking, like I personally, you're not in that restaurant mode where you are having to do like a hundred steaks, you know, in however many minutes, but at home for me, I don't necessarily, it doesn't really mean that I have to temper my own steaks at home. Like I think working in a restaurant, you should temper them because it's going to cook faster and you're, you're worried about speed. Get them out out of the kitchen faster. But at Mm -hmm. home, you're, no, you're a little bit more relaxed. So it's okay if you're taking it right from the fridge and putting it on the um, grill, Uh I think. And then obviously if you like your steaks rare or black and blue, it's even better because it's already going to be like gold and like that's what you're going to want when you want that temperature. For me, for home cooking, whenever I home cook, I will always look, honestly, I try and, and research maybe like where I'm going first, especially if it's a butcher shop and see where they, what farms they're getting their steaks from. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's really important to support the, the farms that care about their employees, that are actually, that care about the animal, that care about the land that they're using. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, a great example of one farm that we are currently using that we just switched to is called... Um, Thomas Cattle Company, mm-hmm. and they actually have all the cows. Like they have raised the cows from birth to their last day, mm-hmm. and their motto is the the worst day of this cow's life is you know when they yeah they have one bad die. day is the day. goal right so one uh. bad day and a lot of farms will actually like just go to auctions and buy cattle. They actually like raise all of their cattle themselves. And I think, you know, we did a little taste test between, you know, them and what we were using. Mm -hmm. And you can really tell a difference. And I, you know, I got to meet with one of the ranchers and one of the owners. And I just, 
you know, it's important for me to support people like that because they care. Right. They care about the product. your customers look to you for that, too. Yeah, and I think, yeah, like, people want to know that they're supporting somebody that cares about the animal, the people, the land, so... Did you know uh, there's a butcher shop called Beast and Cleaver up in our neighborhood and that Pamela supports, our producer supports it because she's in love with the butcher. (laughs) I'm not sure it has anything to do with the meat itself, but... No, uh, no, 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 no. It was the education I got on the butcher cuts from... Oh, okay. I see. (laughs) So if you're a home cook and you're in a grocery store, right, Mm -hmm. and you're looking to have a nice little steak dinner. Um, What are you looking for? What cut? Uh, What color of the fat? Uh, You know, for example, I always tell people when they're buying in New York, don't buy the nerve end from the New York steak, right? And you can see it's running in a little arc right through the steak from the fat cap all the way through the center of the steak. It's called the nerve. Mm -hmm. It's a big nerve. And on on a strip loin, it's about the last, if a strip loin is... 20 inches long, it's the last five inches of the strip loin. Mm -hmm. And your butcher wants to get rid of that first. So if if you don't know about it, that's the steak you're going to get because he's trying to, you know, lose that. It's not a bad steak. It's just not the best part of the steak. Right. It's it's definitely not bad. But yeah, you're right. You get that like really like thick sort of like tendon Mm -hmm. and it's just like chewy. It's not like the best part. Like it's still a nice part. But honestly, my favorite steak is a ribeye. Uh-huh. Um, I just love the, the fattiness that you get with it. And just it, it sort of just melts in your mouth to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, when I go to any grocery store, I always look at the grade. Like, you know, a lot of grocery stores now, they will sell prime, which is great. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. So it's like choice, select, and then uh, prime. Prime being the highest. And yeah, for the most part. Yeah, for the most part. So um, I always look for the grade, and then I look for the marbling. You know, mm-hmm. you always look for that, you know, the white sort of specks within the meat, because when you cook that, that helps, like, bring out that flavor. So mm-hmm. the more marbling, the better. Basically, those are the two things that I really look for, and then go from there. Uh, Pamela, do you have a favorite cut that you look for? Uh, I'm a bone-in ribeye. Bone-in ribeye, yeah. Rib-eye, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, for me... Um, <laughs> I buy uh, steaks and I'll cut them and freeze them for the farm. And sometimes I'll buy the whole roast at, say, a Costco instead of at Kevin's or wherever I happen to be. And they are now selling cap steaks at Costco, which is shocking oh, wow. to me because what they're selling ribeyes, yep. just the eye. The eye, because, which we do at Bourbon. Cause, yeah, because people freak oh. out about that ring of fat around the eye and then there's it's the so cap tender. on the outside. Mm. It's, but the it's, cap is the so cap tender. is so marbled and tender yeah. and it's really, if you see it, grab it. Grab it. Yes. It's really a, a good steak. And a, or just come into bourbon and we'll cook you one. Oh, <laughs> I'd like that even better, <laughs> Megan. <laughs> Megan Vaughn has been our guest. She's the chef over at Bourbon Steak at 4th and Pike in downtown Seattle. We learned a little about her and how to pick a good steak. Look for that white fat, not yellowing fat. Mm-hmm. And look for a, an actual grade. Because if it doesn't have a grade, it's a utility grade and may or may not be good. I would braise it. Yeah. <laughs> if it doesn't yeah. have a grade, yeah, braise, braise it. it. That's, yeah. there's for your, sure. <laughs> there's your clue there. Thank you for joining us today, Megan. No, thank you for uh, having it's me. It's been a pleasure being here. Uh, if you want to be part of our show, just go to hotstovesociety.com and uh, join us. Uh, buy a ticket. You're listening to us on Cairo Radio. The show is produced by Pamela Hinckley. Sean McFadden is our technical producer. And our editor is Sean Don't Call Me Del Torre. And remember, if you miss any episode of our Hot Stove Society show on Cairo, you can listen via podcast. Just subscribe with your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.
a tisket, a tasket, what's a mama's basket, some veggie links, and some fish that stinks, why just the other day I went to grandma's house.